Hello, interwoven listeners, and welcome to a brand new season of podcasts from Plymouth Plantation. This year, we're exploring the ways stories weave through generations, communities, and cultures to inform our contemporary lives. Although we're rooted deep in the history of the 17th century at Plymouth Plantation, we hope our conversations will expand beyond the relationships between the indigenous Wampanoag and colonial English colonists to explore larger cross-cultural interactions which took place between the varied people who lived along these shores of change. In this first episode for 2019, we're kicking things off just in time for St. Patrick's Day with a conversation with food historian Kathleen Wall about what else? 17th century drink. Cheers. Kathleen, what was the daily drink for the average Englishman in the early 1600s when the pilgrims were coming here to New England? Um, The drink in England was generally ale, um, which is different than our modern ale. So it's made from malted barley, but then it might have different herbs in it. It doesn't have hops in it. And it's the hops that are the difference between ale and beer. So Englishmen consider themselves ale drinkers, which is why London is full of ale houses. But beer was a European drink, was a little suspicious. They didn't quite like it. Well, until they did. (laughs) Well, now it's a huge part of English culture. There are so many great breweries and beers that date back to around the time of the Pilgrims. And that's absolutely true. And it's the Brewers Guild that actually brought beer into England, not the ordinary people. Um, During the 1660s and 1670s with the wars in Europe, um, people were... Um, immigrants were coming into England from Flanders and from Holland and from Germany, and they brought beer with them. And the Brewers Guild discovered that beer, that addition of hops, meant you could use less grain, but you sold beer at the same price as ale. So there was a bigger return on beer. So all of a sudden, the professional brewers are preferring beer. Ordinary people are still making ale, complaining about this foreign drink everywhere, but they're drinking it. The other thing is that beer lasts longer on ships, so when they start supplying ships for fishing over in New England and supplying ships for Virginia, they're sending them beer instead of ale. And when we talk about beer and ale, you mentioned that that their ale in the 17th century is different than our ale today. You mentioned the spices. What about the beer? Is the beer recipe essentially the same? So beer can be made from any grain that you moisten and let sprout a little bit and then you toast it. And so that part is the same. And they're using barley for the most part, but they're also using oats and they're using wheat So they have wheat beer, they have vice beer in the 17th century, even in England. Um, They're mixing these grains together. When they come to New England, the wheat doesn't grow terribly well. The barley doesn't grow terribly well. Our hot summers are not good for that. They try to use maize. Maize sprouts on both ends. This does not make good malt. Until they figure out, they can add pumpkins to it, which will give the sugars for the yeast to work with. Their beer is not like our beer. I'm just saying, pumpkin beer in the 17th century is not like our pumpkin beer. (laughs) I read a statistic that beer accounted for a quarter of the daily caloric intake of a 17th century Englishman. So if they're not able to make beer in New England, because as you say, the wheat's not growing well, the barley doesn't grow well, uh, how are they filling that hole in their daily calorie intake? So they do have um, the corn maize for their porridge and their bread, so that's sort of their carbohydrate base, but they have more 
food here. So they have seafood. Um, they have fish almost every day for six months of the year. They have wild fowl almost every day for the other six months of the year, as well as their pork. After the 1630s, they have beef as well. So they eat significantly better here in New England. They also bring lots of garden um, things with them when they come. So they're eating not just those pumpkins I mentioned, they don't all go into beer. It's part of their table for several months out of the year. Uh, but carrots and cabbages and onions and garlic. And they say, um, one man writes back to England, we eat terribly here. It's all fish and coarse bread and we drink water and eat salads and yet our health has never been better. Well, yes, so it's whole grains, um, a lot of vegetables, um, a good deal of water, and they're doing fine. So modern medical professionals recommend eight glasses of water a day. As you just said, 17th century people very suspicious of drinking water. Why is that? Well, they felt that your body was made up of the four elements, and water is one of the elements. So if you put a lot of water in your body, you're unbalancing your elements. So you don't want to do that. You want to always have a good balance. Um, but when they come to New England, there are lots of springs, so they do know the difference between good water and bad water. Um, they recommend not even letting your dog drink puddle water, for instance, but springs are good water. Um, and uh, so they're able to um, drink that, but they're suspicious of it, which is why in the 1630s, when they start bringing rum up from the Caribbean, it becomes very popular. Rum is not a good thing to drink as your daily beverage. <laughs> so water becomes the daily beverage for adults, for children, for servants, for everybody. For everybody here. And what happens a little later on is they bring apple trees over and eventually honeybees, uh, because honeybees are not indigenous to North America. And they replace their daily beer with their daily cider, Again, not the sweet cider, but nice hard cider, fermented cider. It's the fermented part that sort of cooks everything in that drink and makes it good for you. I want to go back to England for a moment. Um, we talked a little bit about the Brewers Guild, so professional men who would produce beer on a large scale. Um, where would a housewife or um, a servant or a master of a house, where would you go to purchase beer? Um, if you lived in a town, in a city, um, you could go to an alehouse to buy your beer. You could go to a brewer to buy your beer. A lot of people were making their own beer even in the city, and you might make it just two or three gallons at a time. So not unlike our modern home brewing. Um, and it would be the sort of thing you would be making fairly constantly. Um, in the country, you would have a brew house attached to your house very commonly. So a separate place to do your brewing. Think of it as a little garden shed just to make beer. I know, everybody wants one now. And, um, and that's where you would do your brewing in larger um, containers to make 55 or even 100 gallons of beer at a time. I've read that this was an opportunity for widows in particular to make money and keep money coming into a household to brew beer or sell beer through an alehouse. Yes, and that's a very good thing. So people would donate malt to the church, and then the vicar would give the malt to the widows so they could make beer and make their own money. So you wouldn't necessarily give food and money to sustain the poor. You would give them something so they could go earn the money to sustain themselves. Oh, so it's almost a deserving, undeserving, poor yeah. situation. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
So oftentimes we'll hear terms like Brewsters thrown around or alewives. Mm -hmm. um, we know alewives very well here at Plymouth Plantation, being the small herring variety of herringfish mm -hmm. that run up Town Brook in the spring and we use to fertilize the cornfield. But alewife has another meaning, doesn't it? And alewife is the woman who sells the ale. Um, again, which could be a widow of a brewer or the widow of a tavern keeper. Um, and alewives are different than herring. Um, and I'll tell you, having grown up around here, we always call the fish herring, although t uh, specifically they're alewives that ran here. Um, alewives have a bigger belly. And that's why they're named that, because alewives were considered a little decadent, um, indulged a little too much in their own brew. <laughs> What's the difference between an alehouse and an ordinary? Is an ordinary another place that a housewife or someone from a household could go to buy alcohol in the 17th century? You wouldn't necessarily. An, an alehouse is more like a pub um, where you could go and get something to drink and often there would be some sort of food there as well. An ordinary, they're only supposed to sell food and they sell a meal. So it's not like a, you can, it's not a fast food place. You go and they say at three o'clock we're having a meal and then you sit down and they put the food on the table and you take it or leave it. You paid your money and you take what you get. So it's more like a boarding house. Um, but, so there were rules and regulations around selling alcohol, producing alcohol, yes. even in the 17th century. Uh, oh, absolutely. And when they came to New England, you have each municipality might have a slightly different rule. So when they come here, there aren't rules at first. And so they start arresting people or bringing them before the court saying, well, he was selling alcohol or he was selling wine. So it's all right if he sold beer, but it's not all right if he sold wine because he bought it and he should only have that for himself and not for resale. And then they had to make rules about all of these things. So that's what you're seeing in the 1630s and 40s. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes they're very specific about what they're selling. Sometimes it's a little more general and it's hard to figure out what's going on. So you talk about wine. Um, and so beyond beer, beyond ale, there's a whole world of alcoholic beverages for people to enjoy in the 17th century. What do we, are they bringing, are they importing those beverages here? Are they mostly just dealing with what they can produce locally? Um, a little bit of both. Um, there is a market because of the ships coming over for fishing, because of the ships that are bringing people in the later 17th century, there is a market uh, for um, sort of resale beverage. Um, but there's also the, the daily market. Um, people are producing for themselves. Rum becomes a huge industry in New England in the mid-17th century, um, and the regulation always seems to be a little bit behind it. And sometimes it's not just a specific drink, it's drunkenness, and maybe that's something I should talk about. You can drink all you like, but you better not get drunk. Um, drunkenness is considered an abomination. Um, drunkenness makes you behave like a beast. It, you lose your humanity when you're drunk. So this is, that is why it is a sinful thing. So it's all right to drink wine. It's all right to drink beer. It's even all right to drink rum when that finally comes around. But it is not all right to be drunk. Do you think that's where the stereotype of Plymouth colonists or pilgrims being thought of as teetotalers might come from because they were so against drunkenness but not drinking, per se? Mm, I, it, it might be that. I, th I think it actually has to do with a later history. The, the mid-17th century, with the introduction of rum in particular, um, and gin in England at the same time, the early industrial 
period begins with the beginning of drunk history. Um, lots of people getting drunk on beverages like they never did before. And part of it is the introduction of distilled beverages, um, which has to do with the evolution of the condenser coil on the stills. Those little curly cues on the end of the stills make them extraordinarily efficient. So all of a sudden it is very easy to make a lot of really high test alcohol. Um, which used to be sold in little jars that you would take by the spoonful as medicine. And now it's your beverage and people are drinking it by the gallons. So it's so drinking as a whole gets a really bad reputation throughout the 18th century. And I think that's where the pilgrims kind of like, oh no, well they didn't have this stuff. So therefore they were better. When you're talking about distilling, if we look back to the early decades of the 17th century, there's a, a famous book called The English Housewife that's published by Gervais Markham, and he lists distilling and malting and brewing among the necessary skills for a successful English housewife. We've talked a little bit about the role of widows, in particular in this beverage economy. Uh, what other roles did women fill? Um, so the housewife is taking care of her whole house, and depending on her circumstance, um, she might actually be producing this not single-handedly, but with her servants, with her daughters, um, perhaps with her younger sisters who might need a place to stay. Um, so you would be producing, you would have a still room, and your still uh, would be to make medicines, like I said. So those distilled beverages, aquavitae is the water of life, Uskabe, which is the Irish word for whiskey, is the water of life. It's considered a healthful thing, but you don't guzzle it down. You don't drink it by the bottleful. You take it by the spoonful. Um, and that's going to shift in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. Markham has a recipe in his English housewife for March beer. What is March beer? So March and October are really special months. So we all know about Oktoberfest. March beer is the other end of it. These are months where the temperature is really good for a long, slow fermentation, so you can make very strong beer. This is not your daily drink. This is the this is the beer you put aside and save for a christening, for a wedding, for a funeral. Those are the occasions you would take this out. So this is not your everyday beer. A lot of times you would take your brewing and you would put your water through your malt, and then you would put more water through that same malt, sort of like using the tea bag twice, and then you mix them together. Now you have something more dilute. So you have twice as much beer, but it's not going to get as strong because it doesn't have as much sugar by the volume. So mm -hmm. we're talking about beer being an everyday drink, and mm -hmm. you've said there's a special occasion beer, March beer, mm -hmm. Oktoberfest, you save for family occasions mm -hmm. or feast days, perhaps. Right. But this everyday beverage, it's mm -hmm. watered down. It's not as much of a high alcohol yeah. content. So what do 17th century people see the value in drinking this beer as their everyday? So um, part of it, so it's probably between a 3% alcohol. So it's a low alcohol, a near beer, I think we would call those now. Um, but it has um, carbohydrates, it has B vitamins, it has, um, it's good for hydration. It actually serves a lot of purposes. And if you need um, five to 6,000 calories a day to get your job done, you need to take some of those in your beverage as well. You, that's a lot of food to eat. And that's just it. When they come to New England, when they come to Virginia, they suddenly have um, on the seaboard, anyhow, that sort of calorie-dense diet that they really want. Sailors at sea are given a pound of butter or a pound of cheese each day. Think about that, because they need all of those calories for the 12 hours of work they're doing that day.
And a pound of butter for our listeners, if they can imagine. That's a box of That's butter. That's a box of butter. Every day. Four sticks. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a really popular story uh, out mm-hmm. about the pilgrims that they arrive at Cape Cod and they decide to stay because they've run out of beer. Is there any truth to this story at all? I just love that, that the whole story of the Mayflower becomes a beer run. Um, <laughs> it's, um, no... They're, they come to Cape Cod, they find springs of water, they have no beer with them. Evidently, the beer belonged to Christopher Jones. It was part of your crossing, sort of like when you take a cruise ship, the food is included in your travel. Once you come ashore, you, you, need to, you, you better have packed your own lunch, um, and which they have. It seems like they didn't bring any beer with them. They don't start brewing right away. They look for water. They drink water. They don't complain about it. They say it's good water. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, yeah, no, but you can't just stop the ship and say, oh, my goodness, we're out of beer. Quick, let's go to Cape Cod. Um, it was the end of their journey. <laughs> There's no um, highway rest area that you could just no. pull over and, and run into the gas station and get something to drink. Uh, but we see this myth everywhere. It's it's on menus and yeah. myths about the Pilgrims, stories about the Pilgrims, about Plymouth. Why do you think that idea of the Pilgrims pulling over because they've run out of beer, why do you think that's so popular for I people? I don't know. Um, and, and, and it seems it just kind of grows by itself and eventually it will, I hope, die a natural death. Um, it's the same. There's another myth that they made pumpkin pies inside of pumpkins because they didn't have wheat to make pastry. And I said, well, that's really nice. But no, no, they didn't invent pumpkin pie in a pumpkin. That just didn't happen either. <laughs> But uh, you mentioned earlier, one of the drinks we do know that they bring with them is this aquavit, this distilled Mm -hmm. beverage. Um, In Mort's relation, the authors describe their explorations on Cape Cod. They comment that they're marching through bough and bushes, under hills and valleys, which tore our armor to pieces. And they couldn't find any fresh water, which we greatly desired and stood in need of, for we brought neither beer nor water with us. Our victuals were biscuit and holland cheese and aquavit. So you called it the water of life. What is it actually? Um, it's it's a very it's a distilled beverage. It's um, often flavored with caraway or aniseed. Mm. Um, it's popular now in Scandinavian countries. It might be the next big thing because last week there was a story about it in the New York Times. So I'm thinking it might be you know where artisanal beer was two years ago. Two years from now it might be aquavit. Um, and it's just distilled. It's a strong flavor for people who aren't accustomed to it. It's very medicinal, um, and at least my experience with it. And um, because I had to try this, I had to try it. And um, so it so it's an acquired taste. It's not something you would just I don't know what you'd do with it, but yeah. Why would they have brought it with them on the Cape Cod with beer or with um, Holland cheese and biscuit? It sounds like. Nobody thought to pack a decent lunch. (laughs) Um, And this is what happens when you have a lot of men without their wives there to sort of guide them and say, no, you're going to shore. You need something else like cheese and biscuits. No, darling, like take something to drink. (laughs) 
As we move through the 17th century, you've talked a little bit about rum, the introduction mm -hmm. of rum to New England. Um, what are some other big changes that we see in the middle part of the centuries? You mentioned cider. There's over 100 commercial apple orchards in Massachusetts today. New England is so well known for cider. Um, so we have cider, we have rum. What are some other big changes that are coming to New England by the middle or late part of the 17th right. century? So uh, things, so between 1620 and 16. 30, there are about 300 Englishmen who settle in New England, most of them in Plymouth Colony. It's the Massachusetts Bay Colony people who come in 1630. They start with 2,000 people. Um, this changes everything. Um, a group of 2,000 is very different than a group of 200. Um, they are more chaotic. Um, they are going in different directions. They have a lot of different opinions as to how things should happen. Um, they end up quarreling a lot amongst themselves, which we forget, um, but they also have a huge impact on the land. Um, Governor Winthrop de declares that any land that isn't fenced in is open, and therefore Englishmen can settle on it, which is very different than the English in Plymouth Colony, where they explore Cape Cod and they say, this ground was harvested recently, let's keep moving on to another piece of ground. So the Plymouth people were sort of keeping the law of the commons. Um, if someone's improving common ground, you don't just walk in on that. Find someplace else. They assumed there was lots more New England to explore. Um, and Boston and the Massachusetts Bay people, they're just, there are lots of them and they're just settling down wherever they can find something. And that starts a lot of conflict too. How is that changing the way people are drinking in New England? Um, one of the things is it makes a bigger market for drink. There are a lot more connections um, in the Caribbean because the sugar industry has gotten larger between 1620 when it's in, in its infancy um, to 1630 when they've figured out a lot of things. Um, there are a lot of family connections between the Caribbean and both Plymouth Colony and um, a lot of these other settlements. And so one brother might be in the Caribbean and another brother in a colonial colony. And so that triangle trade where they're sending fish and food from New England into the Caribbean and bringing the rum back, a lot of that trade is very personal and within families. Um, and then there's still the family that's left behind in England. So there's different ways of making profit and they're sort of monotonizing all of those sorts of things. And the introduction of mass-produced Sugar is going to change the beverage economy of New England, not only with rum, as you said, yes. but sugar for to sweeten tea, which starts to enter the market right. at the end of the century, mm -hmm. coffee and chocolate. And chocolate. There are actually a chocolate house in Plymouth very early on. Um, and um, so, so we see those sorts of drinks as well. Um, uh, and th that whole hot beverage thing in 1620, if you asked Englishmen, they wouldn't, they would think you were crazy. If you want a hot beverage, you would have beer um, and you would put some spice in it and then you would put a hot poker in it. And, um, and that's the sort of thing you have in the winter to warm you up. Um, but just heating things up and infusing them like tea or coffee or chocolate, that hasn't really, that's not mainstream yet. And by the 1660s, it's extremely common everywhere in England and in New England as well. So that's that's a huge shift, yes. And you've been a food historian here at Plymouth Plantation for a long time. Um, what do you love about food history? Um, well, food. No. <laughs> 
um, history. Yeah, I love that there are so many different ways to approach it, um, that it's not just history, it's anthropology, that it's not just anthropology, it's archaeology, um, that it's art history, that you look at the paintings and how are they putting the things on the table and what's on that shelf behind there and what are the dishes that they're using and are the Dutch ones different than the Spanish ones, different than the French ones. So it's sort of comparing all those different sorts of things. What are they calling things? What are the names of things? Sometimes the names come down to us, but what we think is something is different than what they were calling it. So, um, or they use the same word, but they use it to mean a different thing. Like sops and sippets, which we don't use anymore. Um, but we know what toast is, and they were using those occasionally too. And they're all slices of bread with good stuff on top of it. Do you have a favorite recipe either for brewing beer or um, for preparing some kind of food that you always go back to? Um, I'm always I'm always tweaking it. I'm always I um, I, I was raised with what I call nana cooking. You see what's on hand and you make something good with it. So I'm horrible at following recipes, which is kind of ironic given what my work is. <laughs> That's the great thing about 17th century recipes. They're not really recipes. They're more of a statement of process. And well, you have to sort of sort out what might be going on. Sometimes they're a statement of presumption. And so you have to figure out what happened before they got to this point where they tell you to add yet more butter. <laughs> no. My favorite recipe from the 17th century starts with take a pound of butter. And it's like, and it's to cook turnips. And you cook turnips in a pound of butter till they soak up all the butter. Really, it's a wonderful thing to do to a turnip. <laughs> Kathleen, thank you so much for being part of Interwoven, for sharing your enthusiasm about food history and beer with us. Um, and we hope to have you back on the podcast again soon. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Want to learn more? Download or stream more full-length Interwoven episodes available from iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, Join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at Plymouth.org. Interwoven is brought to you by Plymouth Plantation, hosted by Hilary Goodnow and produced by Tom Begley. Our original theme music, Voices from the Past, was composed by John Dante Previdini. Thanks for listening.